This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My title, as you know, is Aquinas and the Basic Principles of the Material World. Let me begin with a few introductory remarks. Much of what I say will, naturally enough, focus on explaining some of the most basic principles or explanatory factors that Aquinas appeals to in his account of the material world. These include the four causes, as they're usually called, hylomorphism, and the distinction between act and potency. However, I will sandwich my discussion of these topics and a few others between two discussions of something else, namely what Aquinas understands by the material world in the first place. The question of what the material world is and the question of what principles govern it aren't really separable, but I have to discuss them in some order or other. I hope I've chosen one that's helpful. Another thing I hope is that I will find the right balance between giving you a potted beginner level introductory account on the one hand and on the other hand giving you some sense of where complications and difficulties lie. If I get this right, most of what I say will be very mainstream and uncreative with only a few things that are provocative. To get rolling then, let me give you a first look at the very idea of the material world. Aquinas sometimes distinguishes between three main branches of science, metaphysics, natural science, and mathematics. To understand this three-way division, it helps to understand two distinctions. First, the distinction between things that can exist without matter and things that cannot exist without matter. And second, the distinction between things whose definitions involve matter and things whose definitions do not involve matter. Putting these together into a two by two table gives us four possible options. The first of which is presumably empty. There is nothing presumably that does not need to exist in matter, but whose definition includes matter. The second option is things that do not need to exist in matter and whose definitions do not include matter. These things are studied by metaphysics. Mathematics and natural science give us the third and fourth options. Both of them study things that cannot exist apart from matter, but with the following difference. While the things that mathematics studies must exist in matter, think of curves or planes. Their definitions do not include matter, with the result that the mathematician understands them in a way that abstracts from materiality. The natural scientist, by contrast, studies things that not only must exist in matter, but that also must be defined in terms of matter. Explosions, let's say, or dogs. As you can tell, this category of natural philosophy lumps together a lot of topics, what we would call physics, chemistry, biology, and perhaps other things as well. The Thomistic idea of the material world that I'm sketching out here is then the world of things that both exist in matter and that get defined in terms of matter. 
But what does Aquinas mean by matter? In 21st century English, to speak of the material world is pretty much the same as to speak of the natural world, the physical world, and the corporeal world. It's to speak of the world of three-dimensional objects, which are continually changing according to what we like to call the laws of nature. Using language in this way, matter is the stuff that material objects are made out of. There's nothing wrong with talking like this. However, when we are speaking not 21st century English, but Tomish, those adjectives I just used, natural, physical, corporeal, material, do not all mean exactly the same as each other, nor can they be counted on to mean exactly what they might mean in 21st century English. If we are to avoid pitfalls, then, we will have to tread carefully. Sometimes when Aquinas uses the word that we translate as matter, namely materia, he uses it to mean something that lines up fairly well with what a normal 21st century English speaker would mean by the word matter, but other times he uses it in rather a different way. Luckily, treading carefully doesn't mean not starting out at all. We can get away with proceeding naively, at least for a while. That's because the world studied by Aquinas' natural science, the quote-unquote material world, contains those three-dimensional changing entities that I mentioned earlier, the quote-unquote material objects. In this very important sense, the realm explored by Aquinas' natural philosophy is the same realm as the realm investigated by today's physical sciences, and the explanatory principles that Aquinas uses still have relevance today. Eventually, I will put a special twist on all of this, but that won't come until the end. For now, we can simply move on to explore the key explanatory principles for the material world. Let me begin with the classic four causes, beginning with what I'll call the snapshot version. Aquinas derives these from Aristotle, the way he Aquinas presents them sometimes offends the delicate sensibilities of Aristotle scholars. But I don't have time to talk about any of that. If there are any highly refined Aristotle scholars in the room, I hereby put them on notice. Get out your smelling salts. Okay, think of a statue. Why is it the way it is? How can we explain its being the way it is? One answer is this. It's made of bronze. So that's why it is the way it is. A second answer is this. It's shaped a certain way. So that's why it's the way it is. A third answer, a sculptor made it. That's why it is the way it is. And a fourth answer, it's meant to honor someone, let's say. So that's why it's the way it is. <clears throat> These answers are different from one another. They are different types of answers. Indeed, they are answers to different types of questions. The first concerns what something is made out of. The second concerns the shaping or arrangement of what it's made out of. The third concerns what brought it to pass that what it's made out of came to be shaped or arranged in the particular way in which it came to be shaped or arranged. The fourth concerns the goal for which the arranger arranged what it's made of. These four questions and answers are four explanations of the statue. 
In traditional Thomistic language, there are four different causes. The way we use the word cause today in 21st century English seems most closely tied to the third of these, the explanation of the statue in terms of what brought it about that the bronze was arranged in a certain way. However, the word cause does show up in the other senses as well, even in ordinary speech today. When talking about goals and purposes, the fourth on our list, we sometimes use the word cause as when we say the money is being donated for a good cause. And even if we don't use the exact word cause, either for arrangement or for what gets arranged, we do say that the statue is the way it is because of the bronze or because of the arrangement of the word bronze, of the arrangement of the bronze. So the word cause creeps its way in there as well. Let me now give you the official names of these four causes in reverse order. That for the sake of which the statue exists is its final cause. That which brought the statue into being is its efficient cause. It's called efficient from the Latin word facere, to do or to make, and not because it involves a process that gets excellent results from minimal input. The shape of the statue is called its formal cause. You can think of the shape of something as its form. And the stuff out of which the statue is made is called its material cause. The material cause is the stuff out of which the statue is made. Bronze, for example. You'll notice that the word material has come up again, not for the last time. Let me walk you through another example of the four causes. Why is a turtle shell so hard to break? First answer, through the material cause, because it's made of keratin. Second answer, through the formal cause, because it's rounded. Third answer, through the efficient cause, because its parents passed on genes that led to a hard to break shell. Fourth answer, through the final cause, because having a hard to break shell gives you a better shot at living long and prospering. And now here is a third example, one that focuses not on the turtle shell, but on the turtle itself as a whole. Its material cause is its body. Its efficient cause is its parents. Its final cause is, well, to live a turtle's life. And if you've ever had the pleasure of watching turtles in a turtle pen outside your study, you will know what a great thing it is for a, for a turtle's life to be lived. Did anyone notice that I skipped the formal cause? <laughs> for Aquinas as well as for Aristotle, the formal cause of the turtle is its soul. Now there are two reasons why this might lead you to raise an eyebrow. First, you might be surprised at the thought that turtles have souls. Second, you might be surprised at the idea that a soul is a form. It's really only the second one that I want to talk about, but I have to say something about the first one too. Do turtles have souls? Well, in the Aristotelian sense, yes, because in the Aristotelian sense, a soul, quote unquote, is an internal principle that makes a living thing be alive. 
If that sounds weird, it's because we tend to think that soul means rational soul. For Aristotelians, all living things have souls, even plants. But that doesn't mean they all have rational souls. So don't let this worry you. It's not as crazy as it sounds. It's not the view that turtles can do calculus, only they keep quiet about it. All right, let me now switch to the second point, namely the idea that a soul is a form. In explaining the concept of form, I started with the example of the shape of a statue. How then can a soul be a form? Is a soul a shape? Is the soul of the turtle merely the fact that its bodily components are shaped in a certain turtleish way? No, a soul is definitely more than a shape. What this reveals is that the notion of form is being deployed in a very flexible and analogical way. <clears throat> the soul of a turtle plays a role in the turtle that is similar to, but not the same as, the role that the shape of a statue plays in the statue. The relationship between the soul and the body of a turtle is similar to, but not the same as, the relationship between the shape of a statue and the bronze. This analogy is dangerous, and it has, I believe, confused many people. But don't blame me because it's Aristotle's own example. So it's his fault. That's what I'm saying. By the way, I have said that these four causes are explanations. Here I am using explanation not or not merely in the epistemic or cognitive sense, according to which an explanation is something that helps us understand. As when we say, wow, thanks. Yeah, that was a great explanation. I'm using it instead in the ontic sense in which what explains something it is what is responsible for its being, or at least partially responsible, as when we say that the high wind explains the damaged roof. Now let's shift focus a bit and talk about hylomorphism. Aquinas says that two of the four causes are internal to the thing that they are causes of. The internal ones are form and matter, the form of the statue is, so to speak, a part or constituent of the statue, and its matter is internal to it as well. Now suppose that you think for a very wide range of beings, it's true that they have both form and matter. Your view could be called matter-formism. However, it sounds way cooler to say it in Greek by using the word hylomorphism. It comes from hule, the word that Aristotle used for matter, and morphism the word he used for form. A hylomorphist is someone who thinks that everything in the physical material world is composed of both form and matter. By the way, a few years ago, some philosophers tried to change the spelling of hylomorphism to hylomorphism. Don't do this. <laughs> hylomorphism is not going to happen. What about things in the non-physical world? Do they have both form and matter? Thomists say no, but there were some medieval philosophers who believed in something they called spiritual matter. It's easy to laugh at this, and Thomists seldom miss an opportunity to do so. But actually, it's nowhere near as crazy as it sounds. If this is piquing your interest, there's a very interesting doctoral dissertation on this written by Michael Sullivan from CUA about, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. 
So far, I have been giving you the snapshot version, version of the theory of the four causes, by which I mean that I've mostly been taking something that already exists, eternal or a statue, and asking why it is the way it is without considering the change by which it came to exist. But there's also a movie version of the theory of the four causes, focusing on the process of change. Think of a bronze lump sitting there on the table. Someone melts it down and shapes it into a statue. We started with some matter, something out of which we were going to make the statue. We also, in a sense, started with a form in the sense that the sculptor started with an idea in his mind of what he wanted the statue to look like. The sculptor, the efficient cause, brings it about that the matter takes on the form he wants it to take on. You might even say that the matter gets informed. And the whole process is governed by the sculptor's goal of making a statue for a certain purpose. We can look at the turtle in a somewhat similar way. Its parents have some gametes, which they, through processes best discussed privately among turtles, bring together. This causes the gametes to be transformed, that word form again, to be transformed into a new baby turtle. So the gametes are the material cause out of which or from which the turtle came to be, and the parents are the efficient causes and the form is the factor internal to the turtle that's responsible for the matters being a turtle's body. What about the final cause? It seems unhelpful to suppose that the parent turtles had a plan to create baby turtles. Instead, it seems simpler to say that the whole process is goal-oriented without any need to suppose that the efficient causes, the turtles, had a plan in mind. Coming at it this way, talking about final causality means thinking of a causal process as being oriented towards coming out in a certain way, as being oriented towards that for the sake of which the process happens. There's such a thing as the natural or correct way for a process to end up, and there's such a thing as the process going wrong. The process goes the way it does so that it can have the correct outcome. If you can accept all that, then that's enough for final causation. The question of whether final causation requires mind is a very important one, one of the many very important questions I can't address here. Let me just say this. Aristotle seems to hold that it doesn't require mind. Aquinas clearly thinks that it does. Not the turtle mind, of course, but the divine mind. Now that we've seen the movie version of the theory of four causes, let me mention something else that goes well with the movie version. The three principles of change, namely matter, form, and privation. In order to get a statue of a bull, you need three things. You need some bronze, you need a bull shape in your mind, at least at first. And finally, you need for the bronze not to be bull shaped. In other words, you need appropriate matter, you need appropriate form, and you need the matter to lack the form. If the bronze is already bull shaped, you can't change it to make it be bull shaped. It's too late. 
So change requires that something lack what it's going to be changed into. In the case at hand, it requires a privation of the form of a bull. Okay, up until now, I've been silently glossing over a very important distinction. The distinction between the substantial and the accidental. There's an awful lot to say about this. I'm only going to say a little bit. To start, I must first explain two Thomish words, substance and accident. In Thomish, a substance is an individual, independent, unified thing. Think of the famous horse Secretariat. Secretariat is an individual, not a universal nature like hoarseness. Secretariat is independent in the following sense. Secretariat can exist without being part of some larger whole. In particular, secretariat is not a property or feature of some entity. The way secretariat's color or speed are properties or features of secretariat itself. Finally, secretariat is one unified entity, not a team of horses or a horse-saddle combination or any other such combo but just one unified thing. Because he is an individual, independent, unified being, secretary is a substance. An accident, by contrast, is, again, remember, we're speaking Tomish, an accident is a property or feature that is added on to a substance and depends on it. Remember when I said just now that secretariat's color and speed are features of secretary? They are accidents, accidents that belong to the substance, secretariat. Now then, if you have a substance and it changes accidents, let's say it changes from red to white or from sitting to standing, then you have an accidental change. The substance remains in being throughout the change, but the accidents do not. One accident goes out of existence and another comes into, an exist into existence. That's an accidental change. However, if a substance undergoes a change so radical that it passes out of existence altogether, only to be replaced by something else, then that's a substantial change. Suppose you hit and kill a turtle with your car. The turtle dies. It ceases to be. It goes out of existence. What's left behind is not a special kind of turtle, a turtle with the accident of deadness, but instead no turtle at all. What's left behind is in fact probably not one thing at all, but instead a bunch of things, a bunch of chemicals. So that's a substantial change. The second one that I have mentioned in this talk, the first was the turtle coming into being when its parents mated. The turtle gametes passed out of existence and were replaced by an embryonic turtle. Interestingly, here too it seems that there is not a one-to-one -one correlation between what we have before the change and what we have after it. I wonder if this is some kind of universal law. Whenever there's a substantial change, the number of substances before the change is different from the number of substances after the change? I don't know. Anyway, let's so there's a difference between two kinds of change. 
accidental change and substantial change. Now I'd like to explain one difference that that difference makes. A difference having to do with matter and form. In the case of an accidental change, we can say that the substance plays the role of matter and the accidents play the role of form. When Socrates gets a sunburn, he acquires a redness form and the matter that gets informed by this redness form is Socrates himself. This is rather similar to the case of bronze becoming a statue. The bronze is the matter and it remains itself throughout the coming to be of the statue. What changes is the shape, an accidental form. The old blob form goes out of existence and the new sleek bull form comes into existence. In a case of accidental change then, the role of matter is played by something that's not very mysterious, a lump of bronze or a horse or a philosopher. But how do things look in a case of substantial change? What's the matter there? This is a hard question. Let's go back to the case of the turtle and let's consider the two substantial changes in its life, its conception and its ignominious demise under your car tire. If we think of matter as existing both before and after the change, then we can ask what it is that does the existing both before and after the conception of the turtle, and likewise, what does the existing both before and after its death? Here's a really tempting answer. A bunch of chemicals, or perhaps a bunch of atoms. Before the turtle was conceived, those atoms did not make up a turtle. After the conception, they had come to be related to each other in such a way that they did make up a turtle. Likewise, before the turtle's death, those atoms made up a turtle. After the death, they were related to each other differently in such a way that they no longer made up a turtle. I call this a tempting answer. It seems to make so much sense. And it's more or less what we learn in middle school, isn't it? Well, let me just say this. It's not the Thomistic answer for what that's worth. There's a long, complicated story to tell here, and I'm a bit worried that I'm about to send us down a horrible sidetrack, but it does seem important to tell the story, at least a little bit. From Aquinas' point of view, it's just not true that there are atoms that exist before the turtle's life begins, during its life, and after its life ends. If there were, then the coming to be of the turtle would not be a substantial change, and neither would its passing away. Both of those changes would be accidental changes, or rather, many accidental changes, rearrangements of the many atomic substances that, for a while, made up the turtle. A turtle being conceived on that conception that Thomas doesn't accept, a turtle being conceived would be like the forming of a business or a team. No new substances come to be, but instead, Substances come to have new relations among themselves. Likewise, dying would be like the breaking up of a business or a team. No substances pass out of existence, but instead the substances keep on existing only now without the relations that they used to have. Aquinas's rather radical alternative is this. In a case of true substantial change, there is no actual being 
that exists both before and after the change. The matter, quote unquote, that persists through the change is not flesh or chemicals or atoms or quarks or anything like that. It's what he calls prime matter, which has no actuality in itself at all, but is instead only a pure potentiality for substantial change. If you find that puzzling, and perhaps even bizarre, then perhaps I'm doing a good job of explaining it. It is a rather surprising claim. It's hard to know what it really means. The easiest way to understand it is this. Prime matter is a kind of primordial goo, so primordial that it has no qualities or features at all. Normal goo is, let's say, slimy and green, but not much more. This goo has no color, no viscosity, nothing. There's no way that it actually is at all. I said that this was the easiest way to understand it, but easiest doesn't mean easy, and still less, and still less does it mean correct. I think it's very hard to understand this interpretation of prime matter, and on top of that, it's pretty much got to be wrong, inasmuch as calling it goo seems to accord it a certain kind of actuality. So whatever you do, don't think of prime matter as goo. I've been contrasting Aquinas' view of prime matter with the view that the matter that persists through substantial changes, atoms, or something like that. That's putting things in terms of the movie version of hylomorphism. Now I would like briefly to return to the snapshot version. On Aquinas' way of thinking, it's false to say that turtles are made up of, let's say, carbon atoms. What we should say instead is that turtles are made up of little turtle bits. Turtle bits that act rather like carbon atoms, at least some of the time. Carbon atoms is just a randomly chosen example, obviously. Thomas sometimes expressed this idea by saying that carbon atoms are, quote, virtually present in the turtle. But I think this is beyond misleading. A virtually present carbon atom is present in the same way that a counterfeit dollar is a dollar. Namely, it's not. The question of prime matter is a very, very difficult one. It's easy enough to learn how to talk the talk, to say the right things, like prime matter is the substrate for substantial change, and prime matter is pure potentiality. But what does it really mean? My own guess is that much of the difficulty comes from covertly thinking of prime matter as a kind of thing, and then asking what kind of thing it is. Perhaps instead we should banish the idea that prime matter is a weird thing that gets combined with another weird thing form to make up a normal thing. Perhaps we should take an altogether different approach. Perhaps when we say a turtle has prime matter, what we really mean is only that the turtle has the potentiality to undergo substantial change and thereby be replaced by some other things. On that analysis, it makes no sense to talk seriously of combining prime matter and form, and therefore, too, it makes no sense to talk about what prime matter is. Instead of thinking about what prime matter is, <clears throat> we should ask what is meant by saying that something has prime matter. Perhaps I could explain this move by bringing up a rather distant analogy. 
Although we say that every group of students has an average height, it's confused to ask what kind of entity an average height is. Instead, we should ask ourselves what we really mean by saying the group has an average height, with the answer being something like the number you get when you divide the sum of the students' heights by the number of the students. The point of this analogy isn't, of course, that prime matter is like an average. The point is only that we have a phrase, prime matter, or average height, that might seem to refer to a thing of some weird sort, but which instead should be understood in a completely different fashion. Instead of asking what these phrases refer to, we should figure out the meaning of the whole sentences that these phrases are contained in. I said I didn't want to go too far down a sidetrack, but perhaps I have done so. Let me try to draw your attention to something that is certainly on the main line, and to do so in a way that will lead us towards the end of the talk. We have seen that change requires matter. Think of bronze. Why is bronze so useful if you want to make a statue? What makes bronze useful is not so much what it actually is, is what it can be, what it has the capacity or potentiality for being. What makes bronze the suitable matter for a statue is that it has the potentiality for taking on the correct form. It can be shaped, and then it will hold the shape. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is this. However we answer the really tricky question of what matter is, matter's role is to be a source of potentiality. Starting with the easy case of matter in an accidental change, Matter is that in virtue of which the accidental change is possible. The substance that undergoes the ac accidental change is matter for that change, insofar as it is capable of losing the old accidental form and receiving the new one. Moving on now to the hard case of matter in a substantial change, prime matter is, well, whatever prime matter is. We talk about prime matter because we are trying to recognize that there is a capacity for substantial change. Whether prime matter is goo or something else, having prime matter is or involves being capable of undergoing substantial change. That's to say having the potentiality to pass out of existence and be replaced by something else. And that leads me to talk for about 15 seconds about act and potency. Whenever there's a change, there's a potency or potentiality, and then that potentiality gets actualized. Matter is where the potentiality lives, so to speak. And when matter's potentiality gets actualized, then you have form. That last remark might raise a further question, a question that will lead us back to the question we started with, Namely, what is the material world really? Here I will be following out some ideas by my former student, David Corey. Let's talk about angels for just a second. Angels have potentialities that get actualized. They can, for example, receive revelations from God, and they can start considering things that they weren't considering before. In fact, that is what led certain philosophers, as mentioned earlier, to posit the existence of spiritual matter. 
as I said, Thomists don't go for this. Rather, rather than getting caught up in the controversies of spiritual matter, let me just say that the kind of potentiality that we find in the spiritual realm is different from the kind of potentiality that we find in the material realm. This can be used to clarify what we mean when we speak of the material realm. Matter for Aquinas is not a special kind of stuff, the stuff that material objects are made of. Instead, it is a principle of potentiality, but not of just any kind of potentiality. Think of a fence being repainted so that it goes from green to white. In order for the fence to become white, it needs to stop being green. Whiteness and greenness are incompatible with one another. And so change means not just gain, but also loss. This is the way things are in the realm of matter. Forms compete to inform matter. But not every change is like this. Suppose I teach you a new word, like Geschwindigkeitsgrenze. To learn this word, it's just an ordinary word meaning speed limit. You don't have to forget some other word. A new form can be added to the stock of forms that you already have. Likewise, if you forget a word, if, say, you forget the word Geschwindigkeitsgrenze, then a new word doesn't have to come in to take its place. To gain a color, you have to lose a color, and to lose a color, you have to gain a color, but knowledge of words isn't like that. This is the difference between the spiritual and the material. Matter, again, is where forms compete. In the spiritual realm, forms can exist side by side without crowding each other out. And so we can say that the material realm is the realm not just of change, but of that very particular kind of change in which non-compatible forms succeed one another. I have tried to sketch out some key principles of Thomistic natural philosophy in just 40 minutes. If the beginners have learned something, and if the experts are only slightly offended, I'm going to call it good. But whether I can call it good or not, I definitely have to call it done. Thank you.